Good afternoon. It's Wednesday, the 20th of December, 2023, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. I'm your host today, Brian Gerrish, and I'm delighted to be joined by Charles Mallett and also by Vanessa Beely, who will be coming in on a link from uh, Damascus. Now, what better place to start with money, expenditure of money? Sometimes the government doesn't seem to have any money. At other times, money is no object. But the focus of the uh, first element of the news today is the police, who are clearly going to get more money. But to what effect? Charles, tell us what you're looking at. Thanks very much, Brian, and good afternoon, everybody. Yes, indeed, plenty of money, your money, being spent by the government, and we have news of an uplift in funding for police. But this follows, in some way, a segment from last week in which we looked at fraud in particular as being a very pressing concern of police. So how are they going to spend this? You see on screen now $843 million to better protect the public, and if we just click on one, we'll see... The detail of this, which suggests that over £200 million will go into priority projects like violence reduction units. So, Brian, I don't know if you can advance it one. Thanks very much. Um, as well as dedicated policing efforts to tackle county lines and antisocial behaviour. Again, to refer back to last week, we saw in actual fact there'd been a decrease in antisocial behaviour. The next bit takes some beating in a sense, in that they refer to the success that they have had and state that in combination with GRIP hotspot policing, an estimated 136,000 violent offences have been prevented. It's not entirely clear how they're arriving at that figure or indeed substantiating it, but nonetheless, they seem to suggest that this money will be spent correctly. Uh, further to this is the announcement that there'll be £922 million available to the police and crime commissioners, suggesting that the Home Office does indeed watch UK Column News because this was talked about exactly last week and not just the uplift of 20,000 new police officers, but the critical part being retention. So whilst they might boast that numbers are at an all-time high, it's a question of being able to hang on to them and how realistic that might be. Now, related to this is what's called a super complaint has been submitted to His Majesty's Inspector of Constabulary, and it refers to Section 60 of the Criminal Justice and Public Order Act, which essentially is uh, an authorisation for search without suspicion. So if we click on one, we'll just have a look at what a super complaint is. And that's made by a designated body that a feature or combination of features of policing in England and Wales by one or more police force is or appears to be significantly harming the interests of the public. So the next slide just shows how the complaint itself raised by CJA entitled More Harm Than Good talks about the suspicionless stops and searches, but also the overall policy of stop and search powers. So I thought we'd just take a quick look at section 60 itself, which is on the next slide. So if we can advance one, and we'll just look at how, how it comes about, which is that an officer of the rank of inspector or above may authorise its use if they reasonably believe that incidents involving serious violence may take place in the police area, or that persons are carrying dangerous instruments or offensive weapons without good reason in the police area, or that an incident involving serious violence has taken place in the police area and a dangerous instrument or offensive weapon used in the incident is being carried, so that this would help in finding them. Now, it's perhaps reasonable to imagine that such a belief could exist based on intelligence, but probably what we should do is look a little bit into the past, into the abuse of such powers, that being suspicion or rather searching without suspicion, most obvious example being Section 44 of the Terrorism Act 2000, which was repealed back in 2012. So I've got here a, a short piece from State Watch Analysis, which refers back to a 2010 ruling by the European Court of Human Rights. So if we just click on one, we'll see that they determine that the Terrorism Act breaches privacy rights afforded by Article 8 of the Convention on Human Rights. 
Section 44 gives police power to indiscriminately stop and, stop and search people without reasonable suspicion. This is in part because the police have too much discretion over when to use this power and insufficient legal safeguards are in place to guard against its misapplication. Now, I don't mean to suggest that, uh, that there's the same identical risk in terms of Section 60, but in effect, it's something that's gone on for a long time and it can be widely applied. Now, the reason that the funding piece at the start of this ties in is that there is a, a large amount of money being given to what are called uh, violence reduction orders. And one of these things is the Serious Violence Reduction Order, the SVRO, which you can see here being reported by locally news. Merseyside police are carrying out a trial period. And in, in a nutshell, this enables police to search without suspicion somebody who may have been involved in a previous incident involving a knife. Now, there isn't time to go into all the detail now, but what I would leave you with on this segment is the uh, title of an article that I'd written back in May of this year, which was all about searching without suspicion, and in particular, the serious violence reduction order. All this relates to Section 60 and indeed the money that can be made by police forces by putting themselves forward to tackle serious violence. So exactly like you say, Brian, money being spent in large quantities, but to what effect? And, and the idea that um, an organisation like the police or indeed the local authority can make money depending on how it, how it uses um, government grants and government funding, I find one deeply worrying. Let's move on to the subject of banking and money and money supply. Now, this is an issue which is really fundamental because everything that moves is driven or controlled in some way by money. And uh, it's an issue which the UK column has been raising for many years, but we never seem to be able to ground things out. Now, I decided that today I'd bring people's minds back on um, some building blocks of money and money supply in UK. And we're back on the subject of the Bank of England. Encourage people to go and have a look at uh, their website. But let's look at this little clip uh, from the Bank of England about, about them. Hi, my name's Tiago, and I work at the Bank of England. The Bank of England is the central bank of the United Kingdom. We're different to a bank you would come across in the high street. That means we don't hold accounts or make loans to the public. We issue banknotes that you spend in shops. There are over 3 billion of these notes in circulation, worth over 60 billion pounds. We set the official interest rates for the United Kingdom. This is called bank rate. It directly influences the cost of savings, loans, and mortgage rates. The Bank of England also keeps a close watch on the financial system, so you can have confidence that your money is safe in good times and in bad. So as usual, the childish cartoon, ch children's cartoon, but delivered as if it is for adults, does it give us any real answers over what the Bank of England is doing, who it's interfacing with, how decisions are made on the printing and issuance of money? Not really. But we can look at a little bit more detail from their site. So uh, this gives an overview at the top here. If we do this very quickly, it says banks buy banknotes from us and pay us to set interest rates and protect the financial system. I believe there's a lot of questions to be asked in that little nest of vipers. Uh, financial companies pay us a fee to cover the cost of regulating their activities and our financial assets generate income uh, for the Bank of England itself. So that's all good. Um, but they are lovely people. So they pass on all the profits we make from printing banknotes to the Treasury. We normally pass on half of our other pros profits to the Treasury. So that's all good. And finally, we return about 250 million each year to HM uh, Treasury. So um, that all sounds good, but it doesn't give us any detail about what's really going on. Uh, we can ask well, they can ask, where does our funding come from? It talks about the printing of the, uh, the bank notes. Uh, it says that banks and building societies fund our work to set interest rates and protect the financial system. How these things actually work become ever more complicated as you delve into them. 
And uh, it also says the banks, building societies and insurance companies pay us a fee to cover the cost of regulating their activities. So they're all in bed together, uh, but uh, there's regulatory responsibility on the bank for which it gets paid by the people it regulates. And uh, it also talks about income from financial assets over 325 years. Now, on their website, uh, there was an interesting little video uh, which was um, about the first ledger, um, which was uh, uh, back from 1694. Let's have a look at this video clip and see what the gentleman tells us. For this year's Explore Your Archive campaign, we're going to be looking at some of the fantastic items in the Bank of England archive. My favourite item is Bank Stock Ledger number one. The Bank of England was founded in 1694 to raise £1.2 million for the government to fund a war with France. Over 1,500 people invested and their names are contained in this book. The first names in the ledger are King William and Queen Mary. They invested £10,000. Of course, not everyone had that sort of money. Thomas Smith, a chemist from Westminster, only invested £25. The Bank of England archive has over 80,000 items which reflect the operations and the work of the bank over 300 years, but it all starts with this ledger here. So I found this uh, clip very interesting because, of course, it tells us that the origins of the bank were absolutely in order to prosecute a war. Uh, a war with France at the time, and a mere 1,500 people were able to put their money in to make sure that that war happened. Uh, we're in 2023 now. Has anything changed? And I don't really think so. But if we look at some of the points about the bank in more detail, we've got this. This is from uh, UK Parliament, um, but it's talking about the financial revolution in May 1689. Parliament declared war on France following the wishes of the new king. At the end of this war, it emerged, UK we're talking about, as a leading European power and Parliament more powerful than before because of its increased control over the Crown's finances. So a lot of questions about how Parliament was taking power there. But here we've got raising money for war. The Commons, which have been in charge of initiating supply bills since the 15th century, deliberately kept William III underfunded, ensuring he and his later successor Anne had to keep Parliament almost continuously in session to get the money necessary to run a war. Manipulation by Parliament, but at the end of the day, we can see this is about running wars. And uh, more goes on, uh, talking about sums of money raised. Uh, we've got another headline here, Commission of Public Accounts. In 1690, the Commons established a Commission of Public Accounts to monitor how the revenue was being spent for the Crown and began inserting appropriations in its supply bills, directing how the revenue was raised and was to be used for specific purposes. And uh, this enabled um, the success of the Bank of England to the banker's entire satisfaction. And uh, the civil list is also mentioned, which altered the re relations between the Crown and Parliament. And this was how Parliament grant granted the Crown revenues of 700,000 a year to meet the costs of running the government and royal establishment. From this point, the Crown was reliant on Parliament's control of revenue for its day-to-day -day running. But was it Parliament in control or was it the bankers? This is the key question, which is still not clear from looking at how the government spends money. But uh, if we look at April 2023, another headline from gov.uk, which is very clear, UK bolsters support for Ukraine and low-income countries. And by pushing money into Ukraine, even though they were saying that this was not directly for weapons, this was uh, continuing to allow the uh, the Ukrainian conflict to happen. Now, let's go back to about 2015 when Mike Robinson produced a video on the Bradbury Pound. But the key part of this, which I'd like to bring across today, is comments uh, which he was showing from David Cameron speaking about how the system works. Let's have a look. Today, we are sold the lie that there is no money. We have to cut back, save reduce the deficit. And yet Chairman Cameron and Chancellor Osborne are borrowing more money every year, despite the austerity. Speaking early in March, Cameron bemoaned the criticism of his and George Osborne's austerity policy. Now, of course, there are plenty of people out there 
with different advice about how to fix our broken economy. Some say cut more and borrow less. Others say cut less and borrow more. There are some people who think we don't have to take all these tough, difficult decisions to deal with our debts. They say that our focus on deficit reduction is damaging growth. And that what we need to do is to spend more and to borrow more. It's as if they think there is some magic money tree. In typical disingenuous style, our great leader limited the debate to those two options, cut more or borrow more. But there is a third option, national credit, and the Bradbury Pound offers a historical precedent for implementing it. In the real economy, the wealth of society lies in what it produces for itself. Real economies have real physical foundations. But Britain's real economy is more or less dead. There is no real wealth left. The foundations are almost gone. Since the end of the Second World War, we've steadily produced less and less in a betrayal of a great engineering heritage. Today, instead of a lifetime career in the industry of our choice, the majority of us are required to find jobs stacking shelves or serving coffee so that we can buy the products we stack and serve. As for the real physical foundations of our economy, those have been sold to corporations to be systematically asset-stripped. Even the assets we still own are in a state of collapse. Within a year or two we will have a shortfall of energy supply, our water infrastructure continues to leak, our roads are in such disrepair that real physical damage is being done to people's cars. Our railways are in such disarray that companies find it cheaper to pay the penalties and walk away from franchises, and yet ticket prices continue to rise ten times faster than inflation. It is nearly six years since the banking crisis which brought us into this great recession. In those years, so-called frontline services, including in the NHS, have been cut, yet government spending continues to rise. What are they spending the money on? Well, one of the things they're spending the money on, of course, is wars. And when wars are, uh, are the hot topic, money doesn't seem to be a problem. Um, but if you ask question about who can create money and why, and the Bradbury Pound with its historical precedents gives us a, a unique opportunity to ask these questions, the government becomes very shy indeed. These are letters, or well, this first letter is going back to 2013. Um, it's a reply from the Treasury to Stephen Gilbert, MP. And uh, basically, the government simply gave a template reply, which was absolutely opaque. I have another similar template letter. Well, in fact, the text is exactly the same. This is to Tim Farron MP as a result of a constituent, uh, constituent ans asking about the Bradbury Pound. And if we look through the letter, um, a, uh, an introduction, obviously, a historical comment. The Bradbury Pound was introduced in 1914. In fact, the banks were bankrupt and uh, there was the need to issue money and the Bradbury Pound did this. But what it highlights is that that issuance of money was not by the banks themselves. Uh, the concept of a Bradbury Pound in the current monetary system can mean a number of things. One proposed use of the Bradbury Pound, which your constituents may be referring to, is to create money that the government could use to meet its financing needs. But of course, the government doesn't do this because the power is always with the bankers and they are completely unaccountable. And he goes on to talk about the uh, fiscal and economic framework. Now, I'm going to leave this little section here today, but I just wanted to highlight to our audience the fact that historically the Bradbury Pound demonstrates that it does not have to be unaccountable bankers that issue money. It can be done visibly and fully accountable to the public, uh, but for a variety of reasons, some of which are pretty obvious, uh, it does not appear that government or the bankers want to do this. We'll come on to this again in future um, news editions, but uh, that's a start asking key questions about who issues money. Now, Vanessa, let's bring you on screen because, of course, you're fully aware that where wars concerned, money is not a problem. But uh, I think you're going to give us a, li a look at uh, what's happening um, uh, in the Red Sea amongst other places. Yes, so today the focus is going to be, as you said, on the Red Sea off the coast of uh, Yemen and, of course, the Gulf of uh, Aden to the south of Yemen. There is a confrontation uh, looming, of course, led by the US since Yemen has intervened to try to prevent uh, the genocide of Palestinians in Gaza and the West Bank 
It is targeted a lot uh, in southern Israel, and it has been targeting uh, ships both uh, crossing uh, the Red Sea off their coast and heading to Israel, and it has been extremely successful. Hence, we've had uh, a recent tour by the Secretary of Defense, U.S. Secretary of Defense, Lloyd J. Austin III. Um, this was from yesterday, so it's in basically the last 48 hours. He's here uh, at the uh, U.S. Uh, 55th Fleet HQ in Bahrain. Um, and then previously to that, uh, Brian, in the next slide, um, he was meeting in Israel with uh, the Defense Minister Gantz in Israel. Um, he emphasized U.S. support for Israel's right to defend itself again from terrorism while minimizing harm to civilians and increasing humanitarian aid to Gaza. Of course, that's complete hypocrisy because they're supplying the weapons that are massacring Palestinians in Gaza and West Bank, and uh, no humanitarian aid is actually entering uh, Gaza, thanks to Israel. He was honored to meet uh, the Israeli PM, my fourth trip to Israel as Secretary of Defense, my second since the October 7th attacks, underscores an important message, the United States' commitment to Israel's security is unshakable. So very clear messages coming across here. And here you have again productive meeting with Yoav Gallant to discuss Israel's ongoing campaign to defeat Hamas, to include objectives, phasing and protecting civilians. Again, hypocrisy. Uh, also that he's focusing on Iran-backed threats across the region and our shared commitment to countering this aggression. Um, of course, that includes Yemen, that is very much perceived as an Iranian proxy, although that is um, misleading. And previously, on December the 15th, he spoke to his counterpart in the UK, Grant Shapps, to discuss the ongoing threats to civilians and global shipping posed by Houthi and Shrullah, which is a resistance movement, attacks on vessels in the Red Sea. These reckless and illegal attacks are an international problem that must be addressed. So it's OK for the US to support Israel's uh, genocide against Palestinians, but it's not okay for Yemen to come to the support of those Palestinians that are being slaughtered in their droves. And finally, just this little clip of part of his uh, press conference, where again, he reiterates unconditional support for Israel. Just play the video, please. As John F. Kennedy said in 1960, America's friendship with Israel is a national commitment. That was true then, and it's even truer now. The United States will remain Israel's closest friend in the world. As I've said repeatedly, our support for Israel's security remains unshakable, and it always will. Of course, what we're seeing here are huge similarities between Zelensky and Ukraine and U.S. unconditional support to destabilize Russia and the U.S. support for what is effectively their military outpost in the Middle East in order to destabilize, balkanize, and fracture the region. Um, here we have uh, Austin trying to lobby the Saudi Minister of Defense to discuss uh, Houthi threats to freedom of navigation in the Red Sea and our desire to work with like-minded partners to secure safe passage for global shipping. So what does that actually mean? Well, what Austin has done is to, is to um, create uh, an international task force to protect shipping from Houthi attacks in the Red Sea. The group will be called Operation Prosperity Guardian. I love how they always find these, these superlative uh, nomenclature for their various operations, which always end in the slaughter of the peoples that they are targeting and includes the UK, of course, primary partner, Bahrain, Canada, France, Italy, Netherlands, Norway, Seychelles, and Spain. Spain has actually withdrawn, citing that it will only join if the EU and NATO get involved. Um, this article in Politico, the US weighs strike options to deter Houthis from more Red Sea attacks. And let's have a look at the shipping companies that have been affected uh, in the next slide, please, Brian. Uh, so the Pentagon in recent days has moved the Dwight D. Eisenhower carrier strike group from the Persian Gulf into the Gulf of Aden off the coast of Yemen. 
Um, and then moving on, Brian, we can look at the other uh, naval uh, presence there. Um, so this comes as Austin and Joy. Sorry, if you can just go back one, please, Brian. <laughs> Um, the Pentagon has bolstered its presence in the region, moving three additional destroyers into the Med Sea this week. Ships join the Gerald R. Ford Carrier Strike Group that has been operating in the Mediterranean since October the 7th, and a deployment that Austin extended again this week. So let's have a look at what this means. The U.S. is pushing Red Sea into a war zone to protect the Israeli genocide in Gaza. Moving on to the next slide, we can see the various shipping companies that have been affected. French shipping and logistics giant CMA CGM announced on Monday that it would reroute some of its vessels through the Cape of Good Hope in southern Africa due to increased uh, Yemeni operations in the Red Sea. And on the next slide, we can see the other shipping companies that have been affected. That includes British Petroleum, Norwegian oil and gas firm Equinor, Belgian oil tanker firm Euronav, Taiwanese container shipping line, Evergreen, Norway-based oil tanker group frontline, German container shipping, oh, sorry, line, Hapag Lloyd, South Korean container shipper HMM, Denmark's AP Moller-Maersk, Mediterranean Shipping Company, MSC, and Taiwan's Yangming Marine Transport. Um, so an extraordinary effect on the shipping uh, going to Israel. And in reality, we have here that not a single cargo ship has arrived in Israel for two weeks in Ilat. And we expect the same for the next four weeks, states the source from the Israeli maritime trade sector. And again, on the next slide, I just want to look again at the map showing what it actually means as in, in terms of time to go uh, instead of through the Red Sea uh, around the Cape of Good Hope. And the head of Suez Canal has said that 55 cargo ships have been diverted around the Cape of Good Hope since the 19th of the 11th. And the next slide the number of ships that have been targeted or affected um, by the Yemeni campaign, and people can freeze frame that later and have a look. Um, this article in Press TV, Yemen says that they will turn the Red Sea into a graveyard after the US announces its maritime coalition. Yemen's uh, defense minister on the next slide has denounced the formation of a US-led maritime task force in the Red Sea to protect the passage of merchant vessels bound for the Israeli-occupied territories, cautioning the Western alliance that any assault on Yemeni soil will have dire consequences. We are in possession of munitions and military gear that can sink your warships, submarines, and aircraft carriers, Major General Mohammed al-Atifi said on Monday. And the Yemeni armed forces will turn the Red Sea into a graveyard of the US-led coalition. Yemen is known historically as the graveyard of invaders. Um, and a quick look at this map just shows how strategically Yemen is placed to prevent the shipping entering the Red Sea and heading up towards um, Elat in southern occupied territories of Palestine and in the Gulf of Aden. Um, <clears throat> so uh, what has actually happened is that uh, Israel has triggered the UAE to establish uh, a land bridge between ports. This was reported in Israeli media earlier in December. And in reality, what does this mean? The next slide will, will just show the map. So it means that now there is uh, supplies being uh, taken by land from Bahrain and UAE to uh, the port of uh, Haifa in uh, northern occupied territories or Israel. And so therefore, uh, the, the, the Yemen campaign is very successful. It's successful from another perspective also, the sense that a French frigate recently had to fire an Aster-15 surface-to-air missile, which cost $1 million, um, against a Shahed-type drone, which cost 20000 And as a French chief, or chief of defense staff, General Thierry Bouchard said, uh, earlier this year, uh, in sorry, earlier this month in a conference in Paris, when you kill a Shahed with an Aster, it's really the Shahed that has killed the Aster. That excellent report. Uh, what caught my attention was uh, Austin's use of the uh, phrase 
his loyalty to Israel was unshakable because that was what David Cameron said when he was prime minister all those years ago. And we've got exactly the same background from uh, Grant Shapp. So the loyalty, is the loyalty to UK at the moment or is the loyalty to Israel? I'm not sure. And uh, we'll watch things with interest. Um, But let's uh, move on. If you like what UK Column is doing, then uh, please support us, get involved, uh, subscribe, support us financially because that enables us to grow and increase the uh, range of uh, topics that we're covering, but also uh, to increase the amount of time that we are actually speaking to our audience. You can also help us by buying something from the shop, and it's a good time of year to think about the UK Column membership gift voucher. So if you haven't had a look at that, get online and have a look at the shop. And of course, share the material, because this is a key point for us, is we're putting out information and evidence and uh, facts in order for people to share them as widely as possible. Now, on... um, Thursday, we've got down with this sort of thing. Uh, This is um, Graham Linehan, who um, will be speaking out on the trans issue. He's uh, a writer and and, uh, creator, co-creator of Father Ted, Black Books and the IT Crowd. And he's been speaking speaking out about life after talking about transgender issues. So he's been censored and cancelled. And um, basically, he's put out a memoir, Tough Crowd, How I Made and Lost a Career in Comedy, which was published in October this year. So um, a very brave man standing up and talking about what happens when you criticise the trans agenda. Uh, So stay posted for that at 1pm tomorrow. Now, we've also got the Pfizer report number 89 based on a lie with Chris Flowers. So look out for that one. And this is some pretty unique work by the UK column um, to stand alongside um, Cheryl Granger and the American team who are uh, talking about um, the Pfizer report. This is a huge amount of data and a huge amount of analysis required. So that team doing great work and we're delighted to help promulgate what they are reporting. Uh, This is the UK column section, which you should look for, the UK Situation Room. And uh, this is uh, giving a rolling summary of analysis into the Pfizer and Moderna document analysis itself. Well, let's move on. And the subject is Ukraine. But of course, if we're talking Ukraine, we have to talk money. So let's... uh, Let's pop Jeremy Hunt on screen. Apologies for that. Well, the only way that we can make life better for families who are working very hard and feeling that they are in a cost of living crisis, the like of which they haven't seen for many, many years, is to get the economy growing sustainably. And that means you have to bring down inflation. And that's why the Prime Minister's main pledge at the start of this year was to halve inflation. He has more than delivered that. Once you do that, once you do the hard work to squeeze inflation out of the system, you can start looking forward to the kind of growth that will see people's wages going up. On top of which, when we can, we want to bring down the tax burden so that people keep more of the money that they earn every month. So there's the uh, Christmas fairy by the tree. He's telling you that all these nice politicians want to do is to tax you less, bring inflation down so that you have more money to spend, when the reality is, of course, they're going to spend more of your money on wars. So let's have a look at uh, what he's also been saying. Uh, This is back in April, uh, but he was boasting about a billion dollars, and that was the phrase that the UK government used, a billion dollars of budget support we've committed to Ukraine this year will ensure that the country is the financing to keep the lights on, hospitals running, and my goodness, they need those for the injured and the schools open. This alongside UK military support will help defeat Putin. So from Jeremy Hunt, it's really all about wars, except when he stands in front of the Christmas tree. He said, but our efforts for a fairer world don't end there. We're also making good on our G7 presidency commitments and delivering a multi-billion pound package of support to reduce poverty and bolster energy security across developing countries. So he's really a very nice chap. He's working with other very nice politicians 
and they get up in the morning simply to make the world a fairer place. And what better way to do that than to pump money, your money, into Ukraine to keep that vicious war going and the deaths and the ca casualties increasing. So um, what uh, can we say about the war in Ukraine at the moment? Well, if we believe the Ukrainian side, it's just getting better and better. Uh, this is the Kiev Post reporting that Ukraine's air defenses are to get, quote, beefier uh, because Zelensky in, in a major speech announced that he's apparently to get more Patriot um, uh, ground to air systems soon. Um, but if you look at uh, that uh, website for the Kiev Post, at the top of it is this banner headline supposedly of Russia's losses. Troops that the Russians have apparently lost, according to the Ukrainians, 349,190. Uh, but if this is reality, Ukraine must have lost the same. Um, my belief is that these are grossly inflated and erroneous figures in order to keep the West believing that Ukraine can fight the war. But here's uh, Zelensky's comments. We're expecting another patriot system from there. Uh, he's referring to Germany. And that is a very important decision for us. We understand how it will help us and we know where we will deploy it in a region that is every day fighting for its life against Russian air attacks. So not too optimistic when you look at his, his actual words. There have been serious discussions with partners and the quantity. I won't say exactly how many for new Patriot systems to come to Ukraine to defend our country. This is a very important result, but I promise not to make public the quantity that will come to defend use. Uh, the reality is that he's hardly getting any of these systems and the ones that he's got don't really work. Uh, we're looking at too few Patriots. In fact, they're very old systems and they can't function against the latest Russian missile systems and they're coming too late. So this is all looking sad for Zelensky. Uh, but if we look at who's produced the report, I just want to emphasize here, it becomes very unclear as to whether you're getting a true Ukrainian opinion. The journalist concerned, Stefan Korshak, um, is uh, from Houston, Texas, and he's a Yaley. He went to Yale and he's also worked for the OSCE. So is he giving the genuine Ukrainian view or is he giving the view that the West wants to hear? I leave that up to you. But even the BBC is had to admit that the war is now not going well for the Ukrainians. Kiev forced to cut military operations as foreign aid dries up. Here's the bulk of the report, and it's saying that there's a problem everywhere with EU and US money. The US Congress has blocked 60 billion. Hungary has also blocked EU's 50 billion. And on top of that, Ukraine is facing an ammunition shortage. Uh, well, here's a report which is getting to the reality of it, because although I've chosen a Russian source, this is indeed the case that Ukraine is now saying they need to mobilize another 500,000 Ukrainians. Why is that? Well, they've already lost two armies to date. And uh, the important thing here is this is going to include old men and women. So what can we tell you about the battlefield? I'm very pleased to be able to quote social media reporters who've been reporting very accurately since the start of the war. So this is military summary. The focus here is on uh, uh, Divka, which is highly fortified Russian city just outside the main um, Donbass area. Uh, um, area, I'll put it that way. This is encircled by Russian forces, as you can see by the pink, uh, but a lot of Ukrainian troops being drawn here for what's effectively another Bakhmut. But if we look at the social media reports, the end of Krinky, um, near collapse, advancing Russian threat, complete annihilation, and uh, defense politics down here talking about the noose tightening. So the reality is that uh, Ukrainian is losing this war increasingly quickly as the money and the ammunition runs out. Well, um, let's bring you back on screen, Charles, and uh, tell us about what's happening with uh, Clearview AI and the Information Commissioner. Thank you, Brian. Further uh, emphasis on the confusion and the potential perils surrounding artificial intelligence, and in this case, particularly uh, facial recognition and the lack of thought that's gone into 
its regulations. So the, the issue that I want to bring up is the information commissioner who last year attempted to fine Clearview for a breach by way of harvesting data that they shouldn't have been able to. Um, and the, their tribunal has ruled against the information commissioner. So we'll just go on one and look at the detail from that tribunal, which was heard last year, gave a decision in October this year. And I'll just take a little bit of text out of that decision, which are the, the reasons number one. So if we click on one, we have concluded that the information commissioner did not have jurisdiction to issue the enforcement notice and the monetary penalty notice to Clearview AI, because although the processing undertaken by Clearview was related to the monitoring of data subjects' behaviour in the United Kingdom, the processing is beyond the material scope of the GDPR and is not relevant processing for the purposes of Article 3 UK GDPR. So you might be wondering really, what is the purpose of GDPR and how can a jurisdictional issue have played such a part in this to effectively render the information commissioner utterly powerless? So we'll just bring a quote from him on screen now. He's a man named John Edwards, and he said in, in respect of this decision, he said, I fully respect the role of the tribunal to provide scrutiny of my decisions, but as the defender of the public's privacy, I need to challenge this judgment to clarify whether commercial enterprises profiting from processing digital images of UK people are entitled to claim that they are engaged in law enforcement. He goes on, it is my job to protect the data rights of the people of the United Kingdom, and it is my view that there are too many who are being affected by the sheer scale and intrusiveness of Clearview's mass scraping of personal information. And he concludes by saying, this is an important issue within the AI sphere, and whilst my office supports businesses that innovate with AI solutions, we will always take the appropriate action to protect UK people when we believe their privacy rights are not being respected. So, in effect, he hits a nail on the head there by talking about Clearview, in effect, carrying on activities that appear to be in flagrant breach of the regulations around data harvesting. But because they say that it specifically refers to law enforcement, they in effect seem to be able to get away with it. So we'll just have a quick look at Clearview. If, if you don't particularly recall the name, they have been mentioned on UK Column a number of times, and they boast of having a database of 40 billion, over 40 billion facial images, from which, of course, all sorts can be done with regard to facial recognition and how exactly that can be used or more specifically abused. They then go on, if we click on one, we'll just look at the way they describe their support for US law enforcement agencies. So they talk about accelerating your investigations and that their revolutionary investigative platform enables quicker identifications and apprehensions to help solve and prevent crimes, helping to make our communities safer. So there may be a grain of truth in that. However, first of all, are they going about it in the correct manner? Secondly, has the legal system in effect caught up at all? And then we have to look at the application of this. So the next slide shows a fact sheet from the Home Office about the police use of facial recognition in the United Kingdom. And if we click on one, we'll see that in the text from that fact sheet, we have a statement saying that Following a possible live facial recognition alert, it is always a police officer on the ground who will decide what action, if any, to take. As with normal investigations, the investigating officer must form reasonable grounds to suspect the person identified is responsible for the commission of an offence and that there is justification for an arrest. The standard procedures for investigation, evidence collection, arrest, charge and prosecution are followed. I think the question here really is whether it's the, the tail wagging the dog or not? Is it really, is it, is it realistic to think that police will be thinking on their own feet when they've been told, in effect, by a computer that such and such a person has commissioned an offence? So is there potential for this to go wrong? Most certainly. We'll look back uh, on the next slide at a study from 2016 reported on by the Innocence Project, When Artificial Intelligence Gets It Wrong. And if we go on one, 
Of course, the counter-argument will be that this is now some years out of date and that it works better and all the rest of it. But this goes back to a Georgetown University study in 2016, and they allowed police officers to run all requests to have facial recognition searches run against their driver's license and ID databases. Based on this figure, the centre estimated that one in two American adults has their image stored in a law enforcement facial recognition network. Presumably that figure will be much higher now. Furthermore, given the disproportionate rate at which African-Americans are subject to arrest, the centre found that facial recognition systems that rely on mugshot databases are likely to include an equally disproportionate number of African-Americans. So again, it touched on by almost every other aspect of policing. The, the, The racial issue doesn't seem to have really been brought out, at least not where Clearview is concerned. Just go on for last quote here um, from the police chief who says, uh, James Craig, Detroit police chief, saying that if the city's officers were to use facial recognition by itself, it would yield misidentifications 96% of the time, which, okay, is a statistic and they have to question exactly how he's come by it. But nonetheless, it is a perfectly staggering figure to, to put out that it could be this inaccurate. So in addition to to the legal and technical and uh, other issues, we've then got the idea of effectively sort of impartial or objective use of it. And is it going to be law enforcement agencies deciding upon how they use it or not? What influence does Clearview itself have over the application of its tools? So we'll go on and have a look at what they've been doing in Ukraine. And... They are very proud to state that when Clearview employees saw the images of the destruction from the Ukraine and Russia war, the team began brainstorming different ways our technology could be used to help. Well, what do they mean by that? Their chief executive wrote a letter to the Ukrainian government listing several potential use cases for our technology that could help Ukraine defend itself against the Russian invasion, which included reuniting refugees separated from their families, identifying Russian operatives and helping the government debunk false social media posts related to the war. So we'll we'll just click on one before we summarise, but they they then have a a sort of highlights part to this, which is saying that um, you can read more about how Clearview has helped the Russian and Ukrainian war, how facial recognition technology can make the world safer and the implications for future wartime conflicts. And then Time magazine had a piece entitled Ukraine's secret weapon against Russia is a controversial US tech company. So if we think back to what we've looked at already, first of all, the, the legal and the technical things, but, but now we have an astonishing bias. So we're really to imagine that in terms of law enforcement, that Clearview itself is not in some way going to be able to act in such a manner, or at least spike the system in such a manner that it will behave in effect, with a mind of its own, and also specifically with Ukraine and Russia, provides a very good example. If we know that it's able to make mistakes, and and indeed a lot of mistakes, how on earth, in a a situation involving combatants, can there be any certainty that it's correctly identifying those sorts of people on the ground? So this this case with the Information Commission's office is one that we will continue to follow at UK Column because it really does expose the, the many, many issues that have not been considered and have not been bottomed out by the government or indeed the corporate entities that are dealing with this, much less so the police. Charles, thank you very much for that. Lots of questions there. More money for the police, more surveillance, but we can't trust the surveillance that uh, we are getting. Is it keeping us safe? I don't get that impression. Vanessa, let's bring you back in and uh, you're going to talk about Neom, the city, the linear city, and what it really means. The line, as they call it, as the Saudis call it. So this is an article in the Times of Israel from 2021. Um, As Saudis sell the city of the future, the five-minute city of the future, investors and critics see a desert mirage. It's a rather um, doom-filled critique of the line, and that was back in 2021. But I wanted to look at today how it plays in to the map of greater Israel. So I just want to remind people of what the NEOM is. So if we can just play the, the, the video, please, Brian in civilization is taking place. Imagine a traditional city and consolidating its footprint, designing to protect and enhance nature, 
The line will be home to 9 million residents and will be built with a footprint of just 34 square kilometers. And we are designing it to provide a healthier, more sustainable quality of life. The line's communities are organized in three dimensions. Residents have access to all their daily needs within five-minute walk neighborhoods. And the line's infrastructure makes it possible to travel end-to-end -end in 20 minutes with no need for cars, resulting in zero carbon emissions. By leveraging AI technology, services are autonomous, saving you time and effort. Designed by world-leading architects, the line is 500 meters tall, 200 meters wide, 170 kilometers long, and housed within an elegant mirror glass facade. Intelligent solutions create efficiency and year-round temperate microclimate with natural ventilation. Doesn't that sound marvellous? <laughs> if we take a look at um, the map of Greater Israel, and of course, although it's, it's called Greater Israel, how I see this is very much, as I said, the use of Israel as a proxy. And of course, uh, the settler state of Israel is bang center in the redesigned uh, Middle East, which also, of course, serves the global hegemony of the US-led coalition, which includes the UK. And the red circle is where um, the NEOM line is, is proposed to be. So again, that, that, that suggests um, that Israel will be the center of this um, carving up of the Middle East. And if we have a look at the next map, it will show more clearly how Neom is basically 60 kilometers away from Elat and very close to, on the Egypt side, uh, uh, Sharm el-Sheikh uh, holiday center. So clearly Saudi Arabia is in on the greater Israel plan. Neom is part of that. And of course, the, the technology for the future, the 15-minute cities. Here, of course, we've got the five-minute cities. And guess what? In the Red Sea, which is off the coast of the Horn of Africa and Yemen uh, and Saudi Arabia, of course, the Middle East untapped oil and gas region. People can have a look at that. But what I also wanted to show is how this all plays into what we talked about just now also. So you have the uh, land bridge from Bahrain and UAE. UAE, of course, normalized relations with Israel back in 2020 under the so-called Abraham Accords. Again, you've got the colored in red circle, which is the neon city, so Saudi Arabia involved. Yemen at the bottom that has been targeted since 2015. Aden in the Gulf of Aden, which was a former British colony, talking about the gas and oil reserves in the Red Sea and in Yemen itself. And of course, clearly there, reducing the need for the Straits of Hormuz off the coast of Iran, the destabilization in Sudan, Eritrea, and Ethiopia, the Israeli presence in Djibouti uh, at the bottom there off the Horn of Africa. So what we're seeing here is shaping up to, to be basically um, a U.S. land grab, the prevention of the rise of BRICS, the prevention of the rise of Iran. And it's certainly no mistake that uh, today in a German court, an attack on a synagogue in an area called Boshum in 2022 has just been blamed on Iran. And of course, we know from Wesley Clark's pre predictions uh, earlier uh, in, in the 2000s um, that Iran is the ultimate uh, target country. So very clearly what we have shaping up is the creation of greater Israel on behalf of the U.S., with Israel as the instrument of uh, US policy. Uh, Vanessa, thank you very much for that. And for our audience, if you'd like to know more about the linear city, you might like to look at the interview I did with eminent architect and urban planner, Leon Creer.
Uh, that was back on the 7th of, 7th of September 2023. And uh, I think you'll find that a very interesting discussion. Just my general comment on what you've taken us through, Vanessa, is that this amazing turbulence in the world, uh, we're seeing it at the moment, Ukraine, but also the Middle East. But do I get a feeling that the respective governments around the world are protecting their own citizens? I don't. I think that those citizens are all to be squashed under the geopolitical boot in due course. Um, we will see whether I'm right. But uh, one of the things UK column has been pointing out, of course, is migration. And um, on Monday's news, I think it was, I was mentioning um, about migration. And I wanted to put up a graph, which I I couldn't put up at the time. Oh, sorry, a spreadsheet. Uh, so this is the headline. If you go and search for it, it's from the UK, um, sorry, gov.uk site, policy and legislative changes affecting migration to the UK timeline. Uh, this enables you to download a spreadsheet. I've got it here. I've animated it. Now, what is interesting is not numerical data. It is the detail and the timeline of what was happening around migration. It starts at 1981, and this is the massive detail of what our governments have been doing in order to open the doors of this country to uh, migration, which is causing suffering both of people here in UK and, of course, the migrants themselves. So the claim that this is somehow accidental policy by respective governments, whether they're conservative or Labour, must be a complete lie. And you can see the information just goes on and on. We're going to say to our audience, please help us get into this to analyse what's being said here and uh, to bring to our audience the real effect and dangers of, of uh, uncontrolled migration. Um, Charles, we're going to bring you back in for a final segment here. And you were talking about land use and trees. I am, Brian. I'll start because it pertains to Christmas trees, which you may by now have, or indeed have decided not to have, but nonetheless, you will be aware that there are plenty of Christmas trees around at this time of year. So I have on screen just now a slide from the British Christmas Tree Growers Association. And if we click on one, we see that, that uh, approximately six to eight million Christmas trees are sold in the UK each year. Now, of course, the point that they don't make is that not all of them are homegrown. So we'll have a look now at the Forestry Commission statistics, which are from this year, their facts and figures 2023. And we see, if we click on one, that now 13.4% of the UK's total land area is now covered in woodland. This represents a, an enormous increase since the commissioning, uh, or at least, sorry, the inception of the Forestry Commission in 1919, when it was about 4% after the end of the First World War. Of course, we mustn't forget that the Forestry Commission's purpose was to increase timber stock after so much of it was used in the First World War. So what I thought we'd do now is just appraise the situation and see whether we're still on course uh, or not. Because, of course, the significant detail for forestry use is that it means that food cannot be grown where forestry is. Um, going back to the purpose of the Forestry Commission here, grown in Britain, stating that in the UK, we are second only to China in terms of the amount of timber that we import. So it's all very well saying that 13.4% of the UK is covered in timber, but we obviously aren't using it in the way that we might be because we import £7.8 billion worth of it each year. So the next thing to look at is why that might be the case and what incentives there are for landowners or farmers to grow things other than crops. And I've just taken as an example the England Woodland Creation Offer the EC, sorry, EWCO, and it supports the establishment of new woodlands. Now, already we're veering somewhat off course because, of course, they say that it's funded by the Exchequer through the Nature for Climate Support, sorry, the Nature for Climate Fund to support projects that will help us achieve net zero by 2050. So if we click on one, we'll see that amongst the objectives, and these are the two that I want to concentrate on, are 
combating climate change by creating new woodlands that store carbon and increasing and improving recreational access in new woodland. So these are being given out at £13,000 per hectare. First of all, then, we'll look at how they're dealing with the, the, the so-called carbon emission side of it and their quest for net zero. So we'll look at the government statistics of greenhouse gas emissions, or at least what they call greenhouse gas emissions. And to highlight the issue, we'll go on and look at the National Atmospheric Emissions Inventory, which is produced annually and has been done since 1990. So with apologies for the minute text, I've got a box here that shows, first of all, the emissions by nature, or at least by industry. And then the the second column shows the 1990 figures. And we've then got the previous five years with 2021 being the most recent. And the two red arrows that have just come onto the screen now show the only two negative values here. So what this means is that every single one of these industries is in effect deemed to be producing carbon dioxide or greenhouse gases. And these are the only two that are in effect able to mitigate and work towards the net zero pie in the sky. They are forest land and harvested wood products. Now, what's interesting to note is that over the 30-year period that these tables have been collated, those figures have almost remained static. The forested area has increased slightly, but it's still absolutely minute in, in comparison with the overall figure. So that's the that's the sort of carbon capture side of it. And the next thing that was talked about was recreation. So on screen now, what I want to do is look at something that the government are calling natural capital. Now, you may or may not have heard of this, but it was updated in July of this year. What exactly is natural capital? Well, we'll go on one and we'll just have a look to see what this is. It includes certain stocks of the elements of nature that have value to society such as forests, fisheries, rivers, biodiversity, land and minerals. Natural capital includes both the living and non-living aspects of ecosystems. So what they're introducing here is the idea that in some way people will place a value on things that they're not necessarily either engaging with directly or visiting or buying. So We'll we'll go on to the next slide because specifically within this document, they talk about what what they refer to as direct use value. This is where individuals make actual or planned use of an ecosystem service. Okay, fair enough. That's consumptive use refers to the use of resources taken from the ecosystem. For example, food or timber, i.e. something that's tangible, something that you do actually consume. But then they refer to non-consumptive use, which is the use of nature without taking any elements such as recreation and landscape amenity. Next, we have uh, the option value, which if we just click on one, we'll see is the value that people place on having the option to use a resource or asset in the future, even if they are not currently. An example would be a national park where people who have no intention to visit it may still be willing to pay something to keep that option open in future. It can be thought of as a form of insurance, such as a wide species mix in a particular habitat as conditions change. And then finally, we look at why put a value on the environment. So the government here is at great pains to say economic valuation is not about looking to sell or commodify nature. It is a useful way of making the relevance and benefits of nature more visible in decision making. Valuation can help decision makers understand the contribution that an ecosystem makes to an area or determine whether an intervention is justified or determine priorities. So we've looked, first of all, at the carbon side of it. And the and now we've looked at the, um, the what's called the natural capital or indeed the recreation side of it. So the, the big issue here is, is what exactly are these forested areas being developed for? Because it looks very much like from the Grown in Britain statistics that it's not for the use of timber uh, in, by way of consumption, as the government would refer to it. But critically, what it is denying or at least nudging the farmer towards doing is not growing food and providing grants specifically for growing trees. Now, The purpose of reporting on this is not to suggest that growing trees is an inherently bad idea. It isn't. But 
what it does bear relation to is the government food strategy, which is now on screen now. If we just take a little bit of text from that by clicking on one, we see that they refer to innovation and they make much of this. They've committed to spend over £270 million through the Farming Innovation Programme and they're supporting £120 million in research across the food system. Now, what does that mean? Specifically, they are talking about uh, supporting progress on a wide range of issues, including alternative proteins and gene editing. And we will launch a call for evidence of the use of feed additives to reduce methane emissions from livestock. We will also work with the agricultural sector to develop a What Works Centre to provide farmers with evidence that supports the adoption and on-farm take-up of new innovations. So it becomes quite clear that in actual fact, the government's commitment to looking after farmers, to looking after the environment, to looking after animal welfare is questionable at best. And indeed, it's very hard to see how what they've set out so far does actually protect those things that I've mentioned. So I think it's relevant to look at who wrote the government's food strategy. So we'll bring him on screen now. And he is called Henry Dimbleby, co-founder of Leon, which is a chain of restaurants. And that is, I'm afraid, as close as he has come to the wide-scale production of food and indeed land management. In other words, and I'm not suggesting he sat in his bedroom and wrote this all on his own, but he has no background or at least legitimate background in this area and yet he has devised the food strategy. He also says that before founding Leon he worked at Bain and Company which is something that I'm sure Ben Rubin would be willing to comment on in future and specifically he talks about he, his dealings in private equity transactions and helping large companies to, to develop their strategies. So given that being the case, and indeed the background in what we've looked at by the, the land use, it seems very hard to imagine that the idea of natural capital is just a theoretical one and that it won't be co commodified, as the government say. So this will be something that we definitely be keeping an eye on. But it appears that going back to the beginning, the, the espoused uh, in the uh, values and indeed the aims of the Forestry Commission have been somewhat subverted in the name of, of climate change and now what, what they're referring to as innovation. So we'll be keeping our eyes on this. Charles, thank you very much. Yes, it seems to me they're talking about uh, you'll be prepared to pay in order to go into a park. So this clearly seems to meet the Agenda 2030 uh, agenda where we will be paying for everything and everything will be itemised so that it can be taxed and paid for and taxed. We'll leave it there. I'm going to say, Vanessa, Charles, thank you very much for joining me today. Um, we've run over time a little bit, but... Uh, important subjects that we've been covering today so no apology for that um, like to say a very big thank you to our audience wherever you are in the world and a very very big thank you to people who are supporting the uk column financially uh, to keep us going we can only do this with your financial support so thank you very much if you're a, a signed up member with uk columns stay with us because we'll be doing extra in just a few moments and i think we'll be having some in-depth discussion on some of the topics that we've covered in the news we'll end there thanks for joining us bye bye